Hello and welcome to the TCT Podcast. I'm Head of Content Daniel O'Connor and in today's episode we're in conversation with the latest inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame. On the 26th of September at the TCT Awards, three more people will join the illustrious crowd that is Chuck Hull, Scott Crump, Hans Langer, Adrian Bowie and Fried Van Kran. Preceding the gala dinner will be three in-depth conversations with the inductees who were nominated in by their peers and then voted for by the general public. In no particular order, our first inductee for 2018 is Professor Emmanuel Sachs. Known to many as Ellie, he's not only a professor at MIT, co-founder at Desktop Metal and the inventor of the binder jetting process, but he is the man that coined the very term for which an entire industry is shaped. Here in conversation with myself, Ellie picks up that story. When I started the, the project, and this is actually while we were still selecting amongst the various ideas, uh, binder jet being what, what's now called binder jet being one of them, I uh, needed a name for the project. And uh, so, uh, so I came up with a list of 15 or so names, uh, and uh, three-dimensional printing was one of them. And uh, and so I shopped it around. I asked colleagues, I asked friends, uh, you know, what, what do you think of this name, that name, the other name? And uh, nobody likes three-dimensional print because uh, they said, uh, uh, what do you mean this isn't printing? Uh, you know, printing is books, paper, whatever. And uh, so my my dad uh, made his living. Uh, he was he's he was still uh, working at that time. Uh, as a publisher, and uh, and and he used to take me uh, when I was when I was a kid. He used to take me to the printing presses and the book bindries. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen a a roll-to-roll offset press, uh, but it's it's a huge machine. You know, it's like hundreds of feet long. So if you can imagine uh, being like eight years old and walking down looking looking at one of these machines so so anyway i was very fond of printing and so i i after doing my market research i said to hell with it i'm calling it three-dimensional printing <laughs> so you gotta know when not to listen you have so ellie take me back to the start how does somebody who is involved with renewable energies get into 3d printing or into rapid prototyping so um, yes, you're, you're, uh, you're right. I had uh, before uh, uh, before working on 3D printing, I had uh, worked in uh, in photovoltaics, uh, solar electricity, uh, <clears throat> uh, and uh, as I did again, uh, by the way, later. So so the major phases of my career were photovoltaics, 3D printing. Photovoltaics 3D printing, <laughs> so with uh, with with one other project uh, thrown in um, on uh, on uh, process process control for uh, making integrated circuits. So uh, yeah, so I had done my uh, uh, I had worked in industry between masters and and PhD in photovoltaics, and then I did my PhD on photovoltaics. Uh, and then I spent a little bit of time uh, uh, making a, a run at uh, commercializing that technology. Uh, 
uh, <clears throat> and then uh, then I had an offer to uh, go back. Uh, uh, at, at, I had an offer as an assistant professor at MIT, uh, uh, so I, I took that up. Uh, it had been uh, uh, it was my intention when I took that offer to continue working in photovoltaics, but there was no funding available. Uh, so uh, in the U.S., uh, Ronald Reagan was president, and he he he, uh, he cut all the funding or most of it. Uh, uh, I I began uh, work at that time. Uh, so this would have been uh, what 86 or so um, on uh, 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 process control for integrated circuits. So there was an opportunity to do some work in that field with some of my then colleagues in uh, electrical engineering. And I had been uh, uh, on the faculty for, I think, right around three years when I, I happened to uh, visit a company that had a, a beta site of uh, a 3D systems machine. And uh, uh, I've spent lots and lots of hours in the shop building stuff. So, uh, so it, it was uh, uh, you know, sort of an immediate uh, fascination with the idea of uh, uh, being able to make complex geometries uh, without having to do all the process planning associated with uh, other, other techniques, machining especially. Uh, so I decided to uh, uh, have a go at it and uh, specifically to target uh, making parts out of uh, materials that were more like engineering materials, especially metals and ceramics was, was my goal. How long did that project at MIT run for and who was part of the team? So I ran that project from... Uh, 88, I guess, uh, until around uh, 2002, and uh, and we uh, I had uh, uh, a number of colleagues uh, 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 who uh, uh, you know who I had approached to participate. Michael Sima uh, and uh, Sam Allen in material science and engineering. Uh, uh, Nick Petrogalakis was in uh, in mechanical engineering. Linda uh, Griffith uh, in chemical engineering. Uh, those were their primary colleagues, and uh, and we had a, quite a large project. We had uh, uh, as many at at one time as uh, uh, twenty grad students and uh, three full-time staff members. And we, we ran an industrial consortium, which uh, typically had uh, about 12 members who had various interests in the technology, uh, spanning from uh, ceramic molds for metal casting, which was actually the first application that we did, was ceramic molds, uh, direct uh, metal uh, printed parts, uh, uh, 
some specialty uh, polymer parts, especially for biological uh, applications. Uh, there were a number of different uh, biological and medical applications. Uh, and uh, uh, and, and uh, centered ceramic parts, so we had a very wide range of interests uh, represented. And, uh, uh, you know, we raised money from the U.S. federal government from several branches. The National Science Foundation was, was a, a really the, the first and sort of founding contributor uh, to the work. And then we had money from uh, the Department of Defense in various, in various forms, uh, DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and Office of Naval Research. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that project uh, ran at a pretty healthy clip for uh, for over over 12 years. And we licensed uh, by field of use. So that was a decision that that uh, we reached with the MIT Technology Licensing Office. So we licensed uh, our first licensee was actually for ceramic molds for metal casting. We licensed for uh, various medical applications for uh, metal parts directly, uh, uh, and one or two others. Uh, so that's a quick overview. Was it that need to print with engineering grade materials that you that led to the invention of the powder and binder processors over um, stereolithography, let's say? Yeah. So, well, so my goal was uh, engineering materials and more specifically to make uh, functional parts and tooling. So some of our first papers were had that right in their title, functional parts and tooling by 3D printing. So as opposed to what you have to remember was back, back then the uh, polymers that were used in stereolithography had very limited mechanical properties and uh, uh, they were early uh, acrylate resins. They were very brittle. They weren't great dimensionally. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, so really, the thrust was uh, let's move from uh, uh, the early uh, uh, form and fit, or even before form and fit, just just uh, just form models to make an actual engineering parts. That was really the goal. So so we came up with a, a bunch of different uh, ideas. Um, uh, the one that we called 3D printing, which is now referred to as binder jet printing, uh, uh, was was one of them. And um, and what it, what attracted me to uh, to binder jet printing was several things. First of all, um, I, I had uh, a sense from uh, visiting uh, uh, inkjet printing companies that uh, there were big things that were going to happen in terms of the growth of uh, the field of inkjet printing. So at that time, there were only the very first uh, desktop uh, inkjet printers uh, available. Uh, like the HP DeskJet uh, had just come on the market. So, you know, that the printhead that went in 
and that machine had 50 nozzles. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, you know, I did some research and had the opportunity to visit uh, a number of companies uh, in the inkjet field, and and I had a sense of what was coming. You know, very high multiplicity of nozzles, and so. So my feeling was that this was a technology that could scale to very high rates. Uh, so, uh, so I saw it as a path not just to making prototypes, but uh, down the road to uh, making uh, production parts. And actually, if you look at at uh, if you look at our first patent, uh, the 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 image on the front page is of a line printer. So it's uh, it's showing depositing the powder and immediately following with a uh, printhead that prints across the full width of the powder bed in one in one pass. So of course that's taken quite a long time to to uh, to get to, uh, and that's actually what we're now doing at Desktop Metal in. In the, in the specific application of uh, printing with uh, fine metal powders. But that was part of the, uh, the original attraction of this particular idea was that there was a, a path to doing it very rapidly because I, I uh, was more interested in that uh, because then, uh, you know, it's one of the great, obviously one of the great strengths of of this field is that you can make uh, geometries that you can't otherwise make, and um, <clears throat> there's less of a reason to do that if you can't also take the technology into production. So uh, a lot less of a reason. So so that was one of the first things I was interested in was uh, having an eye toward scalability in in how fast you could print parts. Um, the other attraction was that um, I, I, I was familiar with uh, metal casting technology and, in particular, investment casting technology. Uh, investment casting being sort of the high end of castings, like like turbine blades and and orthopedic implants and and things like that. And uh, so I was aware that. Um, that uh, uh, you you make a ceramic mold and then you pour the metal in and you break the mold and you get the part out. And in particular, I was aware that the ceramic mold had to be porous. Uh, and the reason those molds are porous, this the same is true for sand casting uh, and uh, plaster casting, uh, plaster mold casting, which is used a little bit. Uh, it has to be porous to let the hot gases out. So, and the reason that the metal doesn't enter the pores is because uh, the metal doesn't wet the ceramic, so it doesn't act like a sponge. So I, I was aware of that, and here, here when we were thinking about binder jet printing, uh, it was clear that the part that was going to come out of the machine uh, uh, was likely to be porous, um, and. Uh, and so, uh, so, it, it, so, so I made that match, and I said, okay, let's uh, let's see if we can print ceramic parts and and use them as molds and cores for metal casting. 
So those were the first kinds of things that we did. And uh, so it was really the it was really the uh, the fact that there was a, a particular uh, manufacturing application uh, that made uh, uh, a relatively short term match to the capabilities of FinderJet that uh, that helped convince me to go with it. So, you know, down the road, I figured, okay, we'll learn how to densify the parts, consolidate them, for example, as we do uh, when we're using metal powders. But but here, this uh, casting application didn't require that. So we could just take the part uh, in its pore state as printed and uh, pour metal in, into it. So that was very attractive. When you stepped away from... 3D printing in 2002, how keenly do you keep an eye on the developments of the technologies? And in that same vein, what did you make of the likes of X1 and VoxelJet and ZCorp and what they were doing with the technology? Sure. Well, uh, uh, you know, I, I stayed in touch uh, certainly with what our own MIT licensees were doing. So that was, uh, that was X1. And uh, and it was originally Z Corp, and then eventually uh, purchased by 3D Systems. Uh, and I I was aware of what uh, uh, Voxeljet was doing, so I tried to stay abreast. Uh, I was I was uh, it was in two, 2001 that I decided to go back to uh, photovoltaics uh, as a consequence. I had as I mentioned I had been in photovoltaics, but as a consequence of the um, uh, of the the 9/11 attacks, uh, uh, I decided to go back into photovoltaics because I always thought that there was a link between uh, energy security and and uh, all that kind of stuff that goes on. So, um, also remember, I had been working as almost my full-time research activity uh, uh, at MIT, uh, or really essentially my full-time research activity on 3D printing for a little over 12 years at that time, and we had launched through licensing a bunch of startups. So uh, so it sort of made sense to take a break uh, anyway. So, I, But I was pretty heavily engaged in, in the the photovoltaic uh, world. So, uh, in fact, I co-founded a company called uh, uh, 1366 Technologies uh, uh, in uh, 2007. And I was the, the founding uh, CTO of that company for seven years. So, that was a pretty full-time job. I can imagine. The second part of that question is, what did you make of the developments that happened while you were away? Uh, from my point of view, it seems that you you talk a lot there about um, uh, making functional parts, but uh, when it comes to someone like Z-Corp, their perception in the industry towards the end became that they were making these really impressive-looking colour parts that didn't really have a function. Were you surprised by that, the fact that they chose that path as opposed to trying to figure out more functional applications? Oh, no, uh, because um, Z-Corp Z was started by two uh, uh, two uh, folks uh, out of my lab at MIT. 
uh, and uh, that that was the path they took. They were they were filling, they were really uh, seeing and filling uh, a hole, an opportunity hole, that uh, that we weren't addressing at MIT. So so you know they were saying, okay, yeah, uh, I I see that. The MIT effort is directed at functional parts and tooling, and so you've got your ceramic molds for metal casting, and you've got uh, and and licensees for that, and then you've got the direct metal and other things like that. Um, but uh, you know there actually is an opportunity uh, to use this technology for uh, uh, for design models. Uh, so so you know that was their express. Uh, Goal right right out of the block. So so that, no, it wasn't a surprise at all. And so after some time away from the industry, you stepped back in. I co-founded Desktop Metal in 2016. What was the what were the developments in? Perhaps it was the inkjet process that really felt that felt like this was the right time to come back. Yeah. Well, it was a. It was a combination of things. So, you know, if you look at what, um, the, you know, why is there uh, 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 interest now in uh, binder jet printing uh, of of metal parts um, more more than in the past? Uh, I think it's a it's a set of factors. The the first is that uh, inkjet technology did in fact uh, Progress along the massively parallel dimension. Uh, uh, so there are now uh, quite a number of vendors of inkjet printheads with uh, thousands or even tens of thousands of jets used, uh, for example, for printing books on demand. Uh, so that that was a very important uh, part of it. Uh, is uh, seeing that you know the, those those kinds of things were now uh, available. Um, <clears throat> another major factor was that uh, early in, uh, well not early, it was actually probably two thirds of the way through our our work at MIT, we uh, we started to use uh, very fine metal powders to print parts. Uh, so uh, these are the the kinds of powders used in metal injection molding, and and the 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 metal injection molding industry at that time was really tiny, and um, and 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 viewed with a fair amount of uh, suspicion. Uh, so uh, so one of the things that happened in the in the intervening time was that the um, the MIM industry uh, really blossomed, and so. All of a sudden, powders were more available and at a lower cost. But uh, more importantly, uh, people have uh, gotten more used to the idea of making production parts out of powder. And uh, <clears throat> so now, when you you talk about metal injection molding, it it you know it doesn't it gets a much more favorable initial reaction or, or reaction in general. So that was another factor, and uh, another uh, another factor uh, is that I think that uh, uh, the industry has 
has gotten to the point where there is uh, a real desire to look at uh, manufacturing with these technologies. And there, there are now examples where that has been the case. And that's been growing, but, um, you know, I have, a, I have a sense that that's uh, 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 sort of reached a critical mass at this point. Uh, so that's also a change. So, uh, so it was, it was those three factors, uh, taken together. And without giving me the secret sauce, can you just talk to me through some of the innovations in single path jetting? Yes. So, well, the, so the, the whole idea is to really take advantage of this super high speed. And, and so, um, so, rather than talking about the innovations, I'll just point out some of the challenges when you go when you're going to really high speeds. So now you're you're trying to create a layer in in well, ultimately a second. We're a little bit slower than that at at this time. So you have to spread the layer of powder in. In, in a, a, some fraction of that time. Uh, and uh, uh, you have to obviously come along with a line printer. Uh, and uh, so even just the laying down of the layer gets uh, much more challenging because you have, to, you have to do it very rapidly. So if you look at uh, how uh, existing uh, layer deposition is done in powder machines, and so this would include SLS, SLM, and uh, DMLS, and and the various binder jets. Uh, it you know it takes some number of seconds to complete the spreading of a layer. Uh, so doing it in less than a second uh, is uh, brings all sorts of uh, challenges because the 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 packing density that you achieve in a powder bed uh, is uh, uh, has to be uh, uh, both high and uniform, and um, especially uh, uh, the uniformity is uh, extremely important for a product uh, like ours, where you you center the part to full density. So. Uh, by the way, that, that was one of the uh, beauties of the ceramic mold application. You're not centering it. So in the beginning, your powder bed density doesn't have to be as uniform. So that was just one of the ways that the fact that you're using a porous part helped. But that's not the case now. We're centering it. So, uh, so it has to be very uniform in density or it will distort. And uh, so, so that's, uh, that's a major challenge. And um, uh, there's there's an interaction of uh, in, on the printing aspect. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you now have sort of a, a wall of droplets uh, being jetted down onto the powder bed, and so there's more opportunity for uh, disturbing the powder bed and uh, and kicking powder up. Uh, 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 so that that uh, is one of the challenges on the printing side. 
So um, <clears throat> there's also uh, the fact that when when you go uh, quickly, uh, if you're going slowly, you have the option of uh, drying, uh, even drying to completion of every layer that you print. Uh, so that that becomes much more of a challenge uh, if you're if you're printing very quickly. Um, and so you know the first thing you have to do is decide are you going to do that or not. So so these are some of the challenges that we face faced with uh, uh, being able to do the SPJ. What applications? of the technology excite you the most? Uh, is, is it the medical parts or is it series production of um, automotive parts? Is there anything in particular that gets, that really uh, fires the flames for you? Right. So <laughs> I, I think uh, I think that uh, uh, one of the, uh, one of the huge opportunities, especially in, med in metal parts, is, uh, is to, uh, uh, push designs to places where they couldn't go otherwise, especially because of internal geometry. Uh, and, and, and another factor is the consolidation of many parts into one, uh, resulting in, um, in, in higher reliability because you don't have uh, multiple parts, uh, in higher performance, lower weight, uh, in uh, streamlined uh, 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 supply chain. Uh, so, so yeah, it, those are sort of broadly the applications that that I find very interesting. The combination of, of integration of multiple parts into one and the uh, 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 real exploitation of the internal geometry uh, aspect. So, uh, in, ter in terms of industry, you know, I I, uh, I, I think. Uh, I, I I don't I, I don't have a, I don't have a favorite. It's like a favorite among children. It's not uh, you know there 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 are lots of lots of applications uh, uh, whether it's uh, consumer products or industrial or medical. Uh, so so there's plenty to, plenty of good stuff to choose from. Just briefly going back to what you said about um, the optimization of parts, uh, be that through. Uh, topologically yeah. optimized parts or consolidated part consolidation. It must be very exciting for you to work in a company like Desktop Metal who are bringing out software like Live Parts where we can see this in action. Yes, absolutely. So we have, as you know, we have a full range of activities trying to to bring a full solution to the customer. Okay. The fellow who runs the Live Parts uh, got his master's with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, 30 years ago, something like that, <laughs> 28, I don't remember. It wasn't on 3D printing. It was actually on a uh, on a CAD project that I had earlier earlier in, in my career uh, uh, at MIT. There you go. It just goes to show how influential you are. <laughs> so anyway, so, so it's 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 great. Uh, he's a great guy. That was Professor Ellie Sachs. I'm sure you'll agree, a worthy inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame. Join us next week when we'll be announcing who's next to join Ellie. Thanks for downloading, thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>